This is WMPG 90.9 Southern Maine Community Radio from USM. In the Pocket, a show where BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, people of color, creatives, artists, and culturists come together and talk about their inspirations, share their narrative, and explore culture. You are listening to In the Pocket with your host, Flo Edwards, and our guest today is Joseph Jackson. He's a man of many hats, including the Director of Leadership Development at Maine Inside Out, and he's also the Director at Maine Prisoner Advocacy Coalition. Please introduce yourself. Yes, uh, my name is Joseph Jackson. Um, I'm the Director of Maine Prisoner Advocacy Coalition. Um, I'm the leadership director of Maine Inside Out, and I'm on staff as the campaign advisor for Maine Youth Justice. Um, I'm born and raised in Texas. I came to Maine um, in the military and the Navy, and I found myself in trouble with the criminal justice system when I was in my 20s, and I spent um, 19 years inside the Department of Corrections. Um, I think I want to start kind of with a poem a little bit, and one of my poems, my poem is entitled Black in Maine. So as we know that um, Blacks in Maine represent less than 1% of society. And so it's a whole different environment from where I came from. When I grew up there, I was surrounded by nothing but black people. So this is my um, poem. Black mother, black father. My blackness runs back to the ancient forest of Wakanda. Backwoods of Texas through Georgia. Original blood historically made my ancestors draws of water and hewers of wood. Now a bullseye when jogging through the hood. The stigma of slavery, segregation, poll taxes, racist tactics shattered the illusion it was possible to be a Baptist while being treated like a savage. Blacks strolling with pride, see the racist react. Whether you're marching wild black, selling Lucy's out the pack, Riding in the passenger seat or bopping in the back. See when you hit the system if they cut you any slack. Conditioned to be happy, I had to have it. Casual sexual habits, money, clothes, blowing weed, smoke out my nose, clean, cruising down the road. Enduring Maine snow, addiction takes a toll. The streets more cold and hoods of hoes and hoodlums says staying high is the only way to cope. I ran with boosters, casual domestic abusers, ball with cats who dreamed of being boosters or quick shooters. In the street life, you gotta hustle to eat right. Gotta be ready, boxing steady in the unexpected street fight. After night night, black nights fly like boat running from blue lights under moonless skies. Black blood will make a trooper shoot ya. I'll put the boots to you and place you on lock. When they finish crafting the language, the system justifies the box. Cops playing tricks to get you to snitch on yourself like a sly old fox. Only a few blacks make it to the top. Oppressive systems plop and erect roadblocks. Erect monuments of racists and tell black people they're not. I hope hell is hot for all the lynchers never caught. For every racist cop pulling the trigger and then yelling halt or placing a knee on your neck kill you then say it's your fault. I don't know how to make the pain stop, to make decision makers wake up and take stock. 
we all know racism is taught and it has infected our system since the ruling of one drop. So while my black blood can no longer be bought, we're still hunted and caught. I pray for every brother hung like chofries or outlined in chalk. Pray for every brother placed on lock or branded by the system for life. Cause for black blood, the system is just that hot. I'm tired of shedding tears. I'm not overwhelmed with fear. Just gonna keep telling you how it is, using straight talk. Yeah. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, um, yeah I, I did um, 19 years inside, um, and I'm one of the founders of the Maine State Prison Branch of the NAACP, and so uh, me and a friend started it back in um, 2003 after we just kept witnessing over and over and over again um, how blacks were being treated in a system that um, everyone at the top that was a decision maker was you know, white. And so now that is the largest um, um, branch of um, NAACP in the state of Maine. Um, it is still functioning. Every year we um, register um, 100 or so people, new people to vote. And all those people that we did register to vote prior to send in for their absentee applications. And, um, and since I got out, I'm the first prisoner. Um, I received my associate's and my bachelor's degree while I was inside. Um, I had the fortune of writing um, Doris Buffett, who recently passed, and you know about her Sing Sing project when I first started taking classes and asked whether or not you know she could support me in my college, um, you know, I mean, endeavors. And um, it's, it turned into a college program that is now. Um, graduated well over 100 people. Uh, I'm the first prisoner to be accepted to a master's degree program while still a prisoner. And now there are prisoners um, who are, you know, um, pursuing their master's degrees because, you know, they had somebody paved the way before them. So when I was in the, inside and working with the NAACP, I, I realized the power, well, first of all, how powerless I felt when I was there, but how empowered I felt when I had someone on the outside that was willing to come in and listen to, you know what I mean, what I had to say and then take those arguments to um, decision makers. And so when I got out, I just, you know, it, it was just a natural fit for me to see if I can do the same thing. So a friend of mine who I talked into going to college and also had got his degree, got out prior to me and started working with Mainers Against Solitary Confinement and when he heard I was released, um, the, um, the nonprofit called me immediately and uh, offered me a position. That was the first time in my life I've ever been offered a position um, where someone told me that they didn't have enough to pay me and that whatever they had to give me didn't outweigh what I had to give them. And so I had never had a pitch like that. And so I've been working um, with Maine Prisoner Advocacy Coalition now going on six years. Starting to do this work, I realized immediately that it wasn't just adult justice I wanted to focus on. I really wanted to focus on criminal justice. And the entry part into criminal justice is with youth. And so I started going to um, Long Creek, going in, doing, you know, just talking about my story with young people. I always wanted to be able to, that when I was young, you know, I used to have these dreams, like I had somebody like me that would have, you know, me pull my coat to, 
you know, some of the things that, um, you know, I was going to experience as a black person that I really had no idea. I, you know, I was in the military. I, I believed in equality. I didn't believe in racism. I heard about it, but I didn't really believe that um, system had been set up in such a way where, um, you know, it was only natural for it to trap um, black men, young black men. And now our fastest growing prison population is black women. Understanding that now, you know, having had some education that one out of three of black babies born today will have, you know, in contact with the criminal justice system and the impact it has for them the rest of their lives. So I've, what I do is I, I stay in contact with people that are on the inside. Families or people inside write to a main prisoner advocacy coalition about um, issues that they come up against with the Department of Corrections. Uh, we make a determination, my staff and I, whether or not those um, issues are systemic. And then if we find that they are, uh, we begin to engage in direct dialogue with um, decision makers, whether if it's something that's um, only at um, a prison level, then I go to the facility. I talk to the person at the facility and I talk to the warden at the facility. And if I couldn't reach um, an adequate um, um, outcome or at least a desired outcome that I felt that should be a desired outcome, I take it to the top. And, you know, it, it does, it's not always a win-win, but uh, I definitely feel like we've made tremendous amount of progress um, just using uh, dialogue as, as, as a way to address some grievances that people have. And then ending this philosophy of retribution and punishment and trying to uh, instill a, a philosophy that's based on restoration and healing. With young people, it's a little bit different. I mean, young people, I mean, um, it's not so much as I get a lot of letters from them, but I utilize art. So as you heard, I'm an artist, um, a poet. I call myself a poet sometime. I actually, my master's degree is in, uh, um, um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a poet. And um, so I use art, I use theater, and we go in and with Main Inside Out, um, we use, um, we have three models, but our model of collaborative collaborative art and sharing that art as a way of activism and social activism. Um, we take real stories from young people, um, their writings, whether it's poetry or music or just even um, breaking it down to the basic elements of what their story is and we create scenes out of their stories. And because of the commonality of, you know, I mean, the population, we're able to intertwine these scenes and create a play. And we've created, I mean, several, several plays over the last five years, I mean, culminating in a trip to DC to perform before um, the Senate um, and particularly the, the, the main um, senators um, um, definitely were appeared. We've been in many different states. We've been in schools all over this, uh, all over the Maine um, because young people want to go back and let other young people know about the challenges they have because for most of them, their journey um, with the criminal justice system began with school. 100% of young people who find themselves incarcerated and, and as a teenager are suspended from school first. And particularly um, in Maine, where we looked at, um, so we have four community groups. Our four community groups are in um, Biddeford, Portland, Lewiston, and Waterville. And it's pretty interesting about the um, community groups we chose because 
um, we find that's where most of the young people are returning to. They were being taken from those communities and being returned to those communities. And Lewiston in particular was a, it's an interesting community from the standpoint of it has the highest rate of suspensions in the state for a school. Well over a thousand. Um, 40% of those are people of color. A thousand a year? A year. Are people of color? Right, and we're only one percent of the population. Yeah. So, so. it's 40%, <laughs> and then and then another 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 30 percent are, are are those that suffer from mental health um, issues and conditions. Wow. Lewiston also has the highest rate of youth incarceration. So okay. yeah, spending. Yeah. So if we if, if if it's not you don't have to go far in this state to see the school to prison pipeline. Maine also, just until recently, um, had no minimum age for which a young person could be incarcerated. And wow. we can also hold a person up to the time they're 21. So if you start taking pe young people at the age of 10, 11, 12, holding them to their 18, 19, and 20, 21, and then releasing them uh, without any supports, um, any, I mean, people have just, those young people have just lost their most crucial social development years. They had never held a job, never driven a car, never done anything like that. Um, so how to get out or pay rent or, you know, even try to think about living on their own. And most of them get out there, you know, they're, they're grown. You know, they're adults now. So it shouldn't be surprising that 44% of them return within one year. And when they return, they return as adults. So the, many of the adults that are locked up in our, our criminal justice system here in Maine, if they're from Maine, they were first in Long Creek. They're the first from Long Creek. And so I, I feel like that pop, in order to interrupt um, the, you know, the school to prison pipeline, we really have to really focus on young people and also focus on how we return folks to society because unless you're tremendously rich, <laughs> um, everyone who enters the criminal justice system, nearly almost everyone, um, lose everything. So any clothing you had, transportation you had, obviously jobs and savings, um, house, um, and very oftentimes um, significant others. I mean, who can, I mean, there's a, there's a tremendous incentive, um, for, you know, uh, for those relationships to be severed, right? Um, just for the sheer nature of prison itself you know, builds the walls where you can no longer touch your significant other. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, that's almost ground for separation in, uh, in and of itself. So unless a person is extremely lucky, um, they lose everything. And so they have to come back into the world cold turkey. And in Maine, you know, um, they're given 50 bucks. To start over. To start over. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And so, and, and then thinking about some of the things about young people, when we start looking at youth and we're looking at the youth that we incarcerate here in Maine, um, Obviously, um, you know, I mean, as far as black and brown people, that our numbers are just are skewed, um, with there being like 28% of youth um, who are incarcerated are black and brown. But in Maine, it has a, another particular challenge that another 30% of, of those youth identify as LGBTQ youth, right? And it, it, it really um, came to a head a few years ago when a young person by the name of Mays. Um, committed suicide in Long Creek that also identified as um, um, in the, as LGBTQ. Um, and so, you know, it, be, it became apparent that, you know, I mean, that we needed to be doing something really different because 
if this um, statistic was holding up and held up to be true, then there was something going on with this population that seemed that it was being targeted as well for incarceration. And, and, and obviously we know that the Department of Corrections right now and has never in its um, period of history um, um, has even adopted policies of, of how to address people who identify as gay and lesbian and, and trans. And so um, having advocacy and, 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 and developing strategies around how to um, um, uh, advocate for those for that group of folks um, definitely has been a priority of not only for impact but of um, main inside out because I think we've been partnering with pulling out right and I know people know about pulling out right but pulling out right is um, uh, a nonprofit that um, does a lot of work in the area around um, gay and trans youth we work with um, Lewis and Auburn outright. So um, so we've been, um, we pulled them in as partners. So we have a lot of collaborative partners in that area and uh, just really looking forward to just changing the whole uh, landscape of how we look at prison reform and punishment and, and in general. So I mean, you can ask me some questions. I can, I yeah. can, talk, I can talk a long time. That's I love fine. it. It was great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So I just learned so much. I mean, I, I knew that our population as uh, people of color was 1% in Maine, but I had no idea the school to prison pipeline um, and how that also was drastically skewed to people of color. I've seen um, a play of Inside Out at USM and it was might have been 2018, but I think it was 2019. And just no. so talented, really. Yeah, well, you know, it's just I can I can tell you um, to see young people get up on that stage by by itself is a measure of success. Because um, you know, I mean, um, the barriers and that um, young people who have been um, impacted by the criminal justice system have to overcome. You know, I mean, first of all, and then to be able to show up. Um, and then tell their story and then, you know, obviously, you know, I mean, perform in a play, um, get up on stage and, and share that story. Um, it's just, uh, things are entirely different. I, but I really believe in that model because I believe for me, I think that when we're talking about impacting and changing hearts and changing people's minds that it's one thing for me to come out here and talk about, oh yeah, 28%, you know what I mean, uh, people of color and you know, a lot of I mean, majority of people who uh, find themselves inside of poor and, and from so lower social economic. I can say that all day long, but in order for it to hit you, um, you see somebody up on, on on stage that looks like you, or a young kid that talks tells his story that sounds absolutely insane because this is an insane, bar, bizarre world. I mean, we only have to just see what happened with Breonna Taylor to know that you know, I mean, that the way we see things and the way um, the criminal justice see things uh, does not, it's, it's not in alignment. And so um, maybe if we, we had a play that showed um, somebody just peacefully sleeping in their bed and then somebody kicking in the door and then just start firing randomly and firing at the lump in the bed, um, then we would have a much greater outrage than, uh, you know, not seeing it, you know what I mean? Just hearing about it. And so seeing these things, hopefully that what it does is it creates a feeling inside of people. And we've witnessed it. We've witnessed um, um, correctional officers 
cool when we go in and start working with young people. It's like, ah, oh, you going in there again? Oh, why you doing that? And then um, just so happens to be the ones that see the play and be like, I didn't know you was going through that. I didn't know that it was like that. Or even here, see that we do a play at a school in Cape Elizabeth and where the superintendent of the uh, facility sends her kids and hears about it and says, oh man, I'm hearing about, about you know, you guys are talking about closing Long Creek. And, and we believe that Long Creek should be closed. I don't think that um, kids should be subjected to the same punishment as adults. So why if a kid make a mistake that it should look like an adult? And that what we understand is that now um, a lot of the behaviors we see in young people is because they are being exposed to trauma. And that um, folks who have been exposed to trauma, the behaviors that young, these young people are exhibiting are is natural for someone who's living in an environment that's filled with trauma-filled environments. And so let's start digging at the bottom of people's stories. Let's just start finding out why these kids are behaving the way they are. And, and we believe that there is, we, we know that they've been suspended from school, so we know you're identifying it in school. But what we don't know is um, if you're putting the right resources into it, because I just had the advantage of when I got out, I. Um, I grew up poor, my family's poor, I'm from Texas, and I, when I was in Maine, I got out of the military, I was, I was poor. But when I got out of the prison, a rich family took me in. Wow. And I lived in their basement in a rich neighborhood in Maine, Brunswick, Maine, um, for three years. Got to know everybody in the community, got to see how that community um, lived. And I can tell you, um, I may have seen the cop three times in the three years I was there. So drive through the neighborhood, didn't see them. Um, kids in that neighborhood um, partied. They went out, you know, they had the day, they drank underage, they experimented with drugs. But the outcomes of what happened to those kids when they got caught um, was, isn't the same outcome we see of kids in other neighborhoods that happen when they get caught. If a kid get caught, um, you know, he's out drinking and in the rich neighborhood, he's brought home and his parents are spoken to. And then everybody try to find out what's going on with the kid. Let's get him in rehab. Right. Um, kids start acting out in school. What's going on in school? And every, every resource is brought to bear on to find out what the issue is. And even if it's the school, they'll remove him from that school and search they find another school that's appropriate. Wow. Everything to, to make sure that that kid's life um, has a life. That's not what happened in other neighborhoods. It's not my experience, and it's certainly not the experience of young people that, um, that I work with. And so um, how do we get this disparity in justice and how do we get it out of our systems that's supposed to serve everybody? I think it's one of the biggest questions when I ask, and I hope that everybody asks when they continue to see these plays and when they see these things happen on stage. And uh, and I think with the play you're talking about is Unspoken Truth. So Unspoken Truth was definitely um, our last one before COVID hit. And uh, yeah, we didn't get to tour it like we would normally tour. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's one of my most powerful pieces. I mean, I, 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 I say that every time. So. <laughs> They're all good. Yeah. They're all yeah. powerful, right? <laughs> I mean, 
So how um, how many rehearsals go into one of these plays? Well, it, it's, it's, well there's a, quite a bit. So it's not like, um, well, you know, we come over to play overnight. Uh, what happens is, is that, especially in our community groups, um, we usually have a project. And usually our project, if it was on the inside, it would be, I don't know, um, three, four months. Um, of working with young people. On the outside, it's a little bit different because um, in our community groups, we meet weekly. All the communities was, was driving us absolutely crazy. I was going to, up and down the highway and I spent my time going up and down the highway. But weekly, weekly we would get together, weekly we would have workshops, we would talk about stories, we would do scenes. We would, I mean, we probably have way more scenes than we ever put in a play. And so the, the creating the scene is not the part, it's the whittling down what is going to go end up in the play. And so there's, you know, maybe before a play happens, uh, you know, maybe eight weeks of rehearsals. Um, and then we before we have, we usually have a big show and, and USM Hannaford Hall has been one of our locations for the launch of our show, which usually happens in November. Um, and, you know, this will be the first year and quite a long time we won't do that. But uh, it's about eight weeks, eight weeks, maybe nine weeks, of con bringing people together from four different communities. Yeah. Um, last year was our biggest cast. Um, I think we had um, 26. So, which was kind of, which kind of, which was really large <laughs> of a cast. Great show, very touching, and um, just really wanted to thank those kids for being so candid, really. Yeah, they've gotten, they've gotten um, some of ours, right? So we, uh, we hold people from life, you know? So they stay with us today, but not but they want to stay with us anymore. So, and so a lot of ours, we have some people that's been with us, not only since they were inside of Long Creek, but now, you know, they're in their you know, 24, 25, and they're still hanging around and getting ready to become facilitators and, 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 and begin to expand and do some of this work on their own. But yeah, no, they're, they're seasoned. Some of them are seasoned vets. That's what I call them. They, we can improvise on top of a hat. Somebody forget their lines, they keep moving fast. You know, it happens, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they forget their line. And especially if it's not your story, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I mean, they're collaborating um, with each other to share each other's story as well. So that's, that's it's not just, you know, I mean, some fiction things that we're just making up. I mean, people are really talking about things that are actually happening to them. And, uh, which is in itself is another element, you know what I mean? To, to be able to share that, right? Uh, which is, uh, and with uh, COVID times, how is Inside Out working with that or around it? So we all, I mean, what, all of our organizations that I work with are fully remote. Um, so uh, right now um, we just finished a fall project, I mean, well, a summer project where um, we had a um, Black Lives Matter documentary. We parted with a documentary, a documentary, and uh, people read poetry from different communities. We just did one where um, one of our quieter um, um, MIOs um, wrote a poem, and we had 26 people read lines from that poem from all four communities and some of our interns who was, you know, in different countries. And that was all documented and put in a documentary. And so that's also, you can find that stuff online, but um, we're getting ready to, we're heading into our fall pro our programming, which is gonna be um, weekly um, workshops. We had a workshop today, um, the, just to announce the workshop was today, but we're gonna have weekly workshops. And it's really gonna be about fo focusing on the articulation of what our models look like historically. 
talking just a little bit about our models. We have a model of, as I, as I said, art and collaboration, but we have a, a model that we call um, system navigation model. Um, as I suggested and, and said that uh, many young people have barriers that they come up against. So um, we are about trying to connect people to the right resources. So a lot of people have unstable housing. Most of, most of the young people um, have a hard time of keeping a job, any job, and it's hard to keep jobs when you, you know, you, you're still living the trauma that you just, you, you've been in. There's some interviews you have where you walk away a better person and you figure out that like, oh, I need to get more involved in something. Yeah. And this is definitely worth getting involved in. Um, what's the plug? How can people get involved? Well, you know me, um, maininsideout.org, um, uh, mainprisoneradvocacy.org, uh, mainyouthjustice.org. Uh. Thank you for listening to In the Pocket with our guest, Joseph Jackson, and your host, Flo Edwards. You are listening to WMPG 90.9 Southern Maine Community Radio.